0: Hello, and welcome back to Tabling the Podcast. My name is Ariane Carp, and I'm here with a wonderful group of actors who are going to take us through a journey. Act three of King Henry IV, part one. Um, we just had the monstrous, amazing uh, tavern scene that was um, its own, almost its own act and now after some time in the taverns, we're moving on right back to right back to the rebellion. So here we go.
1: These promises are fair, the party's sure, and our induction full of prosperous hope.
2: Lord Mortimer
3: and Cousin Glendower, will you sit down? And Uncle Worsher, Plague a pont. I have forgot the map.
2: No, uh, here it is. Sit, cousin Percy, sit. Good cousin Hotspur. For by that name, as oft as Lancaster doth speak of you, his cheek looks pale, and with a rising sigh he wisheth you in heaven.
3: And you in hell, as oft he hears Owen Glendower spoke
2: of. I cannot blame him. At my nativity, the front of heaven was full with fiery shapes of burning cressets, and at my birth, the frame and huge foundation of the earth, shaked like a coward.
3: Why, so it would have done at the same season if your mother's cat had but kittened, though yourself had never been born.
2: I say the earth did shake when I was born.
3: And I say the earth was not of my mind, if you suppose as fearing you it shook.
2: The heavens were all on fire. The earth did tremble.
3: Ooh, then the earth shook to see the heavens on fire and not in fear of your nativity. Diseased nature oftentimes breaks forth in strange eruptions. Oft the teeming earth is with a kind of colic, pinched and vexed by the imprisoning of the unruly wind within her womb, which for enlargement striving, shakes the old beldam earth, and topples down steeples and moss-grown towers. At your birth, our grand damn earth, having this distemperature, in passion shook.
2: Cousin of many, I do not bear these crossings. Give me leave to tell you once again that at my birth, the front of heaven was full of fiery shapes. The goats ran from the mountains and the herds were strangely clamorous to the frightened fields. These signs have marked me extraordinary. And all the courses of my life do show I am not in the role of common men. Where is he living clipped in with the sea that chides the banks of England, Scotland, Wales, which calls me pupil or hath read to me? And bring him out that is but woman's son can trace me in the tedious ways of art and hold me pace in deep experiments.
3: I think there's no man speaks better Welsh. I'll
1: do dinner. Peace, Cousin Percy, you will make him mad. I can call spirits from a vasty deep.
3: Why, so can I, or so can any man. But will they come when you do call for them?
2: Why, I can teach you, Cousin, to command the devil.
3: And I can teach thee, cousin, to shame the devil by telling Mm. truth. Tell truth and shame the devil. If thou have power to raise him, bring him hither, and I'll be sworn I have power to shame him hence. (laughs) While you live, tell truth and shame the devil. Um,
1: Come, no more of this unprofitable chat. Three times hath
2: Henry Bolingbroke made head against my power, thrice from the banks of Wye and Sandy Bottom Severn have I sent him bootless home and weather beaten back
3: home without boots and in foul weather too how scapes use in the devil's
2: name come here's the map shall we divide our right according to our threefold order tame the Wait, archdeacon let's, sorry let's just <laughs> pause here for one second
0: i know mitch it's your it's your Great thing. Ooh, the finished. map. Ooh, the
1: logistics. <laughs> <laughs> Very exciting. Can't wait.
0: Look at these rivers. Um, so let's let's have a chat about that. Beautifully read, everyone. Um, this is this is such a fun scene. I I just love this scene. I I did I w- did a rather funny workshop uh, two summers ago with a group of kids where we were doing scenes from Shakespeare and Monty Python. And I put this scene in um, and paired it with the Monty Python scene from Life of Brian, where the anarchists are having their their meeting and arguing about, you know, like what
4: the thing is. Judea's people front. Yeah. (laughs) The people's front of Judea. (laughs)
0: We're the people's front of Judea. And like, anyway, so I, I just love this that like within within the same rebellion there's a lot of different voices that are kind of struggling to be heard and we've got a lot of very strong personalities um just as a tiny tiny bit of background on um on glendower he was kind of this welsh folk hero um in in kind of during this time period he he rebelled i think it's 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 written in the the shakespeare's english Kings book but he rebelled against King Henry every single summer for eight years between 1400 and I think it was or 1399 and like 1407 he never lost he never like he was never captured he was never but he just every summer was like time to go and make some English kings mad Um, and it's amazing and he's he's kind of this fantastical figure. There's a lot of associations with him and, and Merlin as we're gonna get uh, later in this, in this scene and kind of he's sort of like a magician warrior. Um, so it's a very unusual kind of character to, to have in a, in a Shakespeare play. And once again, I just wanted to also say that here, here we are meeting for the first time one of those people that's been very othered by the other characters just in terms of, um, you, you're you not English, you're not <laughs> a part of our realm, even if we're going to use you, and it's the same with the Scottish, it's like, there's definitely, they're, they're, they're different, there's a lot of talk about how they're different, and Glendower and Douglas, as we'll meet in act four, are two of the most talked about characters in this entire play, um, and they themselves speak differently, I, I, I don't just mean like, you know one may have a welsh accent and one may have a scottish accent but that they that they actually like the vocabulary is different um than the other characters like we haven't heard things like fiery shapes and meteors and all that fun stuff yet um so anyway i just wanted to give that as a little background before before going um uh through it and yes andrew please
5: i just wanted to throw in a little can you hear me all right Yes. Yeah. yeah, Great. I just wanted to throw in a little anecdote about uh, on the topic of Glendower. Uh, when I was casting this a few years ago for a tiny little Shakespeare company in rural New Hampshire, and this is like uh, sheep country. It used to be the sheep capital of the world. We were in this town in New Hampshire, we're exporting wool to England. Anyway, <laughs> lots of sheep there, right? Um, so i was casting this and i was talking to kind of one of the stakeholders of the theater who i knew had uh came from the uk or her family did right and i was like yes yeah, so i'm casting so-and-so for hotspur and so-and-so for how and she did not care at all who was cast in any of those roles she was like so who are you casting for glendower <laughs> that was the most important thing because he was, st- he still is such a folk hero, yeah. uh, even for someone who I guess had a, has a Welsh ancestor somewhere. You know, she's not <laughs> from Wales directly, um, but she was so interested in this guy, and I, and uh, that really threw that home for me. What what a kind of powerful figure he is. Okay. Anyway, little anecdote.
0: That's great, Andrew. Thank you for sharing that. I I also think that Glendower may have a little bit more life in another Shakespeare history play as we were reading Richard II. I think that the Welsh captain that appears is Glendower um, in Richard II. I, at least I, I like that idea that he, because he speaks in the same way as Glendower does. He literally talks about fiery shapes. And I'm like, wait a second, was he auditioning for Henry IV part one? Was he like auditioning this character? Um, but yeah, anyway, I, I, I just, uh, love that. Anyway, so Genevieve and and Coyla, um tell tell us about this interaction. What um, uh, what are your what are your thoughts after going through just
3: this this first bit of the scene? I didn't remember this scene, um, which I'm just like, why didn't I remember it? It's so funny. Uh, it seems so funny to watch them like one up each other, and <laughs> it's enjoyable to watch Hotspur go. I don't like this guy because he's like me. <laughs>
2: yeah i think i think it is interesting they're really similar uh well it's interesting like we've seen him be an angry uh hot-headed character and i think we're we kind of come into the scene assuming that they're going to be similar but very quickly that they i think the the opposition is i think because they're similar but also because the big one that stands out to me is how they refer to the devil and the idea mm. of magic and, you know, mm-hmm. I can command the devil. No, teach, uh, shame the devil by telling the truth. It's like, it's just such a different worldview and perspective. And I mean, you could use like what Shakespeare's thing around civilized and that sort of thing.
6: Mm-hmm. Yeah, true. And
3: I think that Hotspur immediately jumps to that as a way of putting Glendower down. these like, well, you're Welsh, so you're, you're, you know, any stereotype about a, a group of people that you think is less civilized, quote unquote, than... Than yourself, you know that the, the, I love that little monologue, the little speech about then the heavens shook to see the earth shook to see the heavens on fire, and the whole long um, metaphor about like with earth have with the earth having Glendower inside it, it was very uncomfortable and like mm-hmm. yeah, just like kind of drawing on a lot of of that kind of um,
2: it's so positioning paid, right yeah yeah and compared to the the Christian lords of England. Mm-hmm. Um, you have this this pagan who's entirely connected to the only thing that he finds powerful is is the earth and the the nature uh, imagery and for him for for Glendower uh, the devil is this thing that can be controlled and I don't think the devil is in any way controllable by Christian perspective so very much coming at each other from not respecting what is valuable to the other obviously
4: mm-hmm. I mean, in, in a way, Glendower in the scene feels like the hotter Spurs, like it, in terms of what we've seen in terms of like energy levels throughout this play and braggadocio and and um, combat prowess. And it's easy to think of sort of this radiating outward where you have the central kingdom, you know, in England, and then you get up north and then you have the hot blooded, you know, Hotspur, and then you go even more into the wild. And then there's this fantastical figure that's even more Hotspur-y than than the Hotspur yeah. than the hotspur we have seen so far. And so it's like this, it's interesting that at the beginning of this act, and Ari, I think you said that normally this is where people do the act break, that mm-hmm. you come in and instead you have somebody even topping that energy to like launch you into the next bit of the play.
2: I just had a very funny image of of this set in the second World War with Glendower being American and Hotspur being British, <laughs> kind of like yeah, great, great buddy, yeah, that's okay, yeah, yeah, yeah cool. Mm-hmm. what's the
7: churchill what's the Churchill quote like uh, Americans can always be counted on to do what is right as soon as every other option has been exhausted, <laughs> What a churchill thing to say, Jesus Christ. <laughs> very
1: true man i think one thing that's interesting about glamour as a foil for hotspur too is that it really reveals hotspurs um like literalness and single-mindedness like i almost i don't want to say one-dimensional but right hotspur hotspur is like driving forward in like a very sort of like literal way and there's just so much more like color to glendower and like you know metaphor and things like that and so it, it totally makes sense that it's like cats and dogs uh yeah. the two of them attempting to communicate yeah uh, sorry oh,
3: i was just gonna say i think there's a moment where it feels like hopper goes nah, i'm done and he's like all to dinner and i think that's the shortest calmest thing i've said so far and <laughs> i think it's that moment of like I don't want to do this. It's just interesting because normally he's the one who's poke 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 keep get going. I refuse. The
2: two of them, the two of them are going at each other like that. They're locking horns for sure. I think what's really interesting, actually, as a foil, is Glendower makes Hotspur seem calm, rational, uh, not superstitious, (laughs) and he kind of gives like a, a a base for Hotspur because up until now we're like, well, how extreme is he? How off the cuff could he be? And in front of Glendower, he's like, oh, no, he's a reasonable Englishman <laughs> next to this guy.
8: <laughs>
1: also, also though, I it is interesting. I, I do think Glendower is sort of the one, like, presumably they're here to talk business, right? They're here to talk about, like, what they're going to do. And so Hotspur storming off, right? Hotspur leaving without having done the business is walking away from the fight. But I don't know that it's, like, the high road. And, and it's sort of Glendower who... I mean, if I'm right in assuming that they're here to talk about how they're going to divide the kingdom up, it's Glendower who's like, says, no, 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 okay, fine. Let's talk about, let's talk about the map and, and like doesn't respond to the last jab that gets Hotspur in.
2: Reading it, that I took that as just being uh, out fenced. I, I don't think Glendower's fast or Ooh. sharp enough to keep up with Hotspur's wit. And so it's like, all right, this is the way out of this and saving face is to just move to the thing that we're both hmm. going to work on. Because I'm losing at this
1: point.
8: Mm. I just wanted to to observe that I do see a similarity between Glendower and Falstaff only insofar is that in so far as that they are so overblown. Mm -hmm. And I I, as I was listening to the fiery so forth and so on, it just it it just kind of brought to mind Falstaff in some ways. Can you double the
2: casting, Ari? Can can you have Falstaff play Glendower?
0: I you, you could. Yeah, you could do that. It would be a big ask yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, for a character, but it was for the actor. But um, I, I also just wanted to, um, to mention that when I was uh, staging this, I found um, I actually had a, a very big age difference between um, the actor who was playing Hotspur and the actress who I cast as Glendower, like a whole generation And I actually found that I had always thought of Glendower as a very sort of fiery character, but I also found that there could be a very, there could be an almost like an almost eerie self assurance and calmness with which um, Glendower is sort of talking about his birth and talking Mm -hmm. about his, you know. And there were so many different things that I learned, like staging this in a, a three-quarter thrust stage. Um, and one of the really fun things to play with in this um, is just playing status games, essentially, between the two of them. And, and actually, I think the way we ended up doing it, and the Hotspur was significantly taller than the, the, the Glendower, but that there was this moment after the Home Without Boots and in Foul Weather 2, How Scapesy Egg in the Devil's Name, there was this really long silence And then glendower just like very calmly was like well here's the map shall we um do the thing so there were but it was interesting because then Hosper was pissed off because it was like Hosper didn't but anyway all this to say that i think there is so much opportunity if you're staging this to like play around with status and distance um and, and it's also interesting to me, like, where are Mortimer and Worcester during this? And is, has this happened Not the entire right. time they've been staying together? <laughs> you know?
1: Well, can I, can I just say on the note of status, uh, like, it's really noteworthy that these huge personalities and huge, just like people who, these two people who take, take up a room are in here having this fight and like silently standing by trying to keep the peace is the person they're going to make king right? (laughs) Like, I think it says something about Mortimer that he is not a driving force in this (laughs) scene, (laughs) right? (laughs) Yeah.
0: There's a, there's a (laughs) wonderful moment in the, the, um, else once brilliant play Courage to the Field, uh, which I, I think I mentioned last time, which is this wonderful sort of rewriting of this play from the perspective of the, uh, the servants and the female characters. And, uh, there's this wonderful moment where it's late in the play and, and one of the characters says, who is this Mortimer? Why comes he not to fight for his own title? And it's like, that to me is like such a brilliant, it's like, this is the guy they're gonna put on the throne who we meet for like half a second. Like, what is that? You know, it's just an interesting thing. Yeah,
4: Sam. Um, There's just like, I'm very obsessed with Glendower's line. I can call spirits from the vasty deep because it just seems like such a non sequitur to everything that had kind of happened before it. Um, with Hotspur saying like, all right, you speak the best Welsh. I'm going to dinner. I want out of here. And then you have almost this aside Mortimer line. And then Glendower out of just nowhere has this declarative statement about calling spirits from the vasty deep. And it's incredible. And it really sets up like... I will fully admit that uh, I've been watching a lot of cartoons recently in pandemic as like a regression, but there's always sort of this character that comes in sometimes of like, I make like, like I imagine him gleaming and I like imagine him like almost like salt bay energy in a weird way. Like there's something like big and pompous and, 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 uh, just that I can call spirits from the vasty deep just seems so out of nowhere to me and such a humorous logline for everything else that is like happening around it. Um, it just really tickles my fancy. And like that beat in particular.
2: It's also an interesting desperation in Glendower that um, he's using the same rhetoric that he uses for his people and his society that like, this, you know, these images are really powerful. This is why you want to follow me. And that type of imagery doesn't work on the English. And he first says one thing and, and and every time he gets cut down, he can't really defend it because it's just propaganda. And then he jumps to the next piece of propaganda. And then he gets through the list of propaganda and he, he can't defend any of it. So he just goes back to the map.
0: And speaking of the map, <laughs>
2: transition,
0: transition, Uh, We should go into Mortimer's map speech just I think um, as a way to just have a visual in your head for our listeners and for our cast as we're going through this that um, Trent and Severn are the names of um, what were two very important rivers during during this time and Trent was a river that flowed south and then went uh, northeast in the Midlands and Severn was a English River that flowed south into Bristol Channel. And if you think about essentially how they're dividing the kingdom, which as we learned from King Lear, it's never a good thing when you divide the kingdom, (laughs) (laughs) Um, that they would divide it so that essentially Mortimer would have control over most of England. Uh, Glendower would then take control of Wales and Hotspur and the Percy family would take control of sort of the north of England um, up into the Scottish border. And then of course, they're also allied with Douglas. So Douglas would take Scotland, um, which they already have. Uh, So just to give a a, a sense of this is how they're um, proposing to divide up the kingdom as we go through it. All right.
1: The archdeacon hath divided it into three limits very equally. England, from Trent and Severn hitherto, by south and east is to my part assigned. All westward, Wales beyond the Severn shore and all the fertile land within that bound, to own Glendower, and, dear cuz, to you, the remnant northward lying off from Trent. And our indentures, tripartite are drawn, which, being sealed interchangeably, a business that this knight may execute, tomorrow, cousin Percy, You and I, and my good lord of Worcester, will set forth to meet your father and the Scottish power, as has appointed us at Shrewsbury. My father Glendower is not ready yet, nor shall we need his help these fourteen days. Within that space you may have drawn together your tenants, friends, and neighboring gentlemen.
2: Shorter time shall send me to you, lords, and in my conduct shall your ladies come from whom you now must steal and take no leave. For there will be a world of watershed upon the parting of your wives and you.
3: Methinks my moiety... Ariana, is that how you say Yes,
0: moiety. Great word. Perfect.
3: Perfect. Oh. Me my moiety north from Burton here in quantity equals not one of yours. See how this river comes me cranking in? And cuts me from the best of all my land, the huge half moon, a monstrous cantle out. I'll have the current in this place dammed up, and here the smug and silver trent shall run in a new channel, fair and evenly. It shall not wind with such a deep indent to rob me of so rich a bottom here.
2: Not wind.
1: It shall. It must. You see, it doth. Yea. But mark how he bears his course and runs me up with like advantage on the other side, gelding the opposed continent as much as on the other side it takes from you. Yea, but
7: a little charge will trench him here and on this north side win this Cape of Land, and then he runs straight and even.
3: I'll have it so. A little charge will do it. I'll not have it altered. Will not you?
2: No, nor you shall not.
3: Who shall say me nay?
2: why that will I.
3: Let me not understand you then. Speak it in Welsh.
2: I can speak English, Lord, as well as you. For I was trained up in the English court, where being but young, I frame it to the harp, many an English ditty lovely well, and gave the tongue a helpful ornament, a virtue that was never seen in you.
3: Mary. And I am glad of it with all my heart. I had rather be a kitten and cry than one of these same meter ballad mongers. <laughs> I had rather hear a brazen canstick turned or a dry wheel grate on the axle tree, and that would set my teeth nothing on edge, nothing so much as mincing poetry. Tis like the forced gate of a shuffling
2: nag. Come, come, you shall have Trent turned.
3: I do not care. I'll give thrice so much land to any well-deserving friend, but in the way of bargain, mark ye me, I'll cavil on the ninth part of a hair. Are the indentures drawn? Shall we be gone?
2: The moon shines fair. You may away by night. I'll haste the writer and withal Break with your wives of your departure hence. I'm afraid my daughter will run mad, so much she doteth on her Mortimer.
1: Fie, cousin Percy, how you cross I my can't father.
3: Choose. Sometimes he angers me with telling me of the mold warp and the ant of the dreamer Merlin and his prophecies, and of a dragon and a finless fish, a clip-winged griffin and a molten raven, a crouching lion and a ramping cat, and such a deal of skimble-scamble stuff as puts me from my faith. I tell you what, he held me last night at the least nine hours in reckoning up the several devil's names that were his lackeys. I cried, hmm and well go to but marked him not a word oh he is as tedious as a tired horse a railing wife worse than a smoky house i had rather live with cheese and garlic in a windmill far than feed on kate's and have him talk to me in any summer home
1: in christendom in faith he is a worthy gentleman exceedingly well read and profited in strange concealments valiant as a lion and wondrous affable and as bountiful as mines of india shall i tell you cousin he holds your temper in a high respect and curbs himself even of his natural scope when you come cross his humor faith he does i warrant you that man is not alive might so have tempted him as you have done without the taste of danger and reproof but do not use it oft let me entreat you
7: in faith, my lord, you are too wilful. Blame, and since your coming hither have done enough to put him quite besides his patience, you must needs learn, lord, to amend this fault. Though sometimes it show greatness, courage, blood, and that's the dearest grace it renders you, yet oftentimes it doth present harsh rage, defect of manners, want of government, pride, haughtiness, opinion, and disdain, the least of which, haunting a nobleman, looseth men's hearts and leaves behind a stain upon the beauty of all parts besides beguiling them of condemnation. Well,
3: I'm schooled. Good manners be your speed. Here come our wives, and let us take our leave.
1: This is the deadly spite that angers me. My wife can speak no English. I know Welsh. My
2: daughter weeps. She'll not part with you. She'll be a soldier, too. She'll to the wars.
1: Good father, tell her that she and my aunt Percy shall follow in your conduct speedily.
2: She um, is desperate she's, here.
0: <laughs> sorry, I'm just going to pause there and say that um, actually the, the actress who was my lady Mortimer who went through a painstaking effort to learn and translate some text into Welsh is going to record this for us. So we will have a little bit of Welsh. Um, Amazing.
2: Nice.
0: There. It, nice. I was very, very, and she's uh, hopefully going to do this song that cool. um, wonderful. Back to
2: <laughs> speaking to my daughter in Welsh. Lots <laughs> of, of
0: consonants.
2: <laughs> she is desperate here. A peevish, self-willed harlotry, one that no persuasion can do good
1: upon. I understand thy looks, that pretty Welsh which thou pourest down from these swelling heavens, I am too perfect in, and but for shame in such a parley should I answer thee. I understand thy kisses, and now mine, and that's a feeling disputation. But I will never be a truant, love, till I have learnt thy language. For thy tongue makes Welsh as sweet as ditties highly penned, sung by a fair queen in a summer's bower, with ravishing division to her lute. Nay, if you melt, then she will run mad. Oh, I am
2: ignorance itself in this. She bids you, on the wanton rushes lay you down, and rest your gentle head upon her lap, and she will sing the song that pleaseth you, and on your eyelids crown the god of sleep, charming your blood with pleasing heaviness, making such difference twixt wake and sleep as is the difference betwixt day and night. The hour before the heavenly harnessed team begins his golden progress in the east.
1: With all my heart I'll sit and hear her sing. By that time will our book, I think, be drawn.
2: Do so. And those musicians that shall play to you hang in the air a thousand leagues from hence, and straight they shall be here. Sit and attend.
3: Come, Kate, thou art perfect in lying down. Come, quick, quick, that I may lay my head in thy lap. Oh, you giddy goose. Now I perceive, the devil understands Welsh, and no marvel. He is so humorous. By our
6: lady, he's a good musician. Then should you be nothing but musical, for you are altogether governed by humours. Lie still, ye thief, and hear the lady sing in Welsh.
3: I had rather hear, lady, my brack howl in Irish.
6: Wouldst thou have thy head broken? No. Then be still. Neither. a woman's fault. Now God help thee. To the Welsh lady's bed.
3: What's that? Peace, she sings. Come, Kate,
6: I'll have your song too not mine in good sooth
3: not yours in good sooth heart you swear like a comfort maker's wife not you in good sooth and as true as i live and as god shall mend me and as sure as day and give us such scarce net surety for thy oaths as if thou never walkst further than finsbury swear me kate like a lady as thou art a good mouth-filling oath and leave in sooth and such protest of pepper gingerbread to velvet guards and Sunday citizens. Come, sing. I will not sing. Tis the next way to turn tailor or be a red breast teacher and the indenture be drawn all away within these two hours. And so come in when you will.
2: Come, come, Lord Mortimer. You are as slow as hot Lord Percy is on fire to go. By this our book is drawn. Will but seal and then to horse immediately with all my heart.
0: Lovely. So there's quite a lot of little sections in that scene, eh? I mean, there's, there's like, we had the sort of initial argument, then we, we have the g- going through the map Then we have another argument and then we have a sort of hot spur schooling um session (laughs) um i love that worcester speech kelly that you that you got to do there it's such a great it's like like worcester is such a good diplomat like he's so good at sort of firmly but politely saying what really needs to be said (laughs) um and then we have our lovely ladies come in and then Hotspur gets some insanely complex language and, and strange, very, um, very, very strange, <laughs> very strange language. Like yeah. your last bit there, Genevieve, I have no idea what the red breast teacher turned Taylor, like what the significance of that is. Yeah. I st- like, I I just, question mark, question mark.
3: <laughs> it feels like, it feels a little bit like, I mean, cause I, I I feel like I'm I'm trying to get her to sing, almost kinda of trying to get her to lay on my lap. I'm kind of trying to get her to do a lot of things and she she doesn't do them. And so it kind of feels like it's like a, it doesn't end well for how like he says this thing about Taylor Redbreast teacher and it's like, eh, that, I thought that was gonna be better in my head. Okay, I'm leaving. Like it doesn't feel like a great button.
4: Yeah. Isn't is not redbreasted teacher in reference to singing like a robin? It, like a it bird? is
0: to do with the, with a bird, yeah. I just don't understand the the meaning in relation to the tailor. Like, I just don't. It doesn't.
7: It's tricky.
2: Isn't he, uh, hmm. What's a comfort maker?
0: A, sh- a confectioner. So, someone okay, so who makes very sweet, sugary things.
2: So he's jumping around with a lot of these different um, trades.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
1: That first part seems to be like he he's like you're swearing like like tradespeople, like you're being but but he's saying you're being overly polite, like I think yeah. he's setting up the joke uh, um swear me, Kate, like a lady as thou art, a good mouth filling oath, which seems mm-hmm. to be a joke, right, like mm-hmm. swear like a lady, like give me an actual swear word,
3: well, I think he's also making fun of the weird listening to the whole. <laughs> Yeah. Welsh interaction. <laughs> I was like, "Oh my god, these two haven't had sex. Oh my god!" Like, yeah. to me it's it seems I like, like yeah. he's trying
6: to get a smile out of her or trying yeah. to get her to like joke around with him, and she's just like not taking the bait. Like he just keeps poking at her. Is how I felt going through the scene, you know. Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. Does it remind
7: anybody else of Hamlet? The Hamlet and Ophelia. That's what I kept yeah. thinking in this is that, you know, there's a there's another command to have a lady lay in the lap and this mm-hmm. very and very public moment, you know, mm-hmm. where it's it is kind of ridiculously inappropriate in some ways what he's asking to do, but it's it's a setup for something else more so than the interaction. So it's just interesting when you think about not the politics of the the kingdom or the the court of saint james but the politics of interpersonal relationships and like he doesn't really want her to be here as we've learned from the last scene so it's just really interesting to think about those kind of parallels i was also kind of confused uh like why (laughs) why the ladies are here because
3: i i think as hotspur i was like i already said goodbye to you this feels (laughs) awkward to see you again and like i don't know like it feels like he's making a lot of jokes. Maybe he's trying to avoid being serious again. That's what I was
6: going to say is it's like, he's got all of these words and jokes and stuff like that. It's a very serious moment. And he's saying, Oh, like, you know, um, don't be like a little sweet, you know, confectioner's wife, da, da, da. basically saying like, to me, it came across as I want you to relate in this moment with me different than you're choosing to relate. Like he wants her to be kind of jokey jokey with him. And she's like, no, I'm not going to sing. I'm not going to live in this reality of yours. Maybe everybody else does because they're your lords and all this other stuff and kind of listens to you go off in these moments. But like she called him out emotionally. And the other thing, she's like, I'm your wife and I'm just, I'm not going to do this with you right now. You know? Mm -hmm. I
4: uh, I think this whole thing is about sex. Like, I'm just going to say that like this whole (laughs) thing feels to me like, hotspur kind of wants to get laid before he leaves and that's the way that i read this scene um uh i had to look it up but the line that really stuck out with me i had rather hear lady my bratch howell and irish and i looked up what bratch is and it is specifically a female hunting dog um which which leads me that like the head in the lap going for like the whole thing there's all of these things that lead me to believe that the game that is being played here is Hotspur is kind of like, I, I kind of want to like get a little frisky before we go and and it's being turned down to me. Right, like this.
6: he's saying like, oh, you know, don't say in good sooth, like don't talk like some other, like you're not just some girl I'm talking to at a bar, like you're my wife and like you're not, you know, like there's just, she seems to be using language that's not... Um, Well, to the closing that off,
4: the other thing is now God help thee, and then his immediate response is to the Welsh lady's bed, as in, like, may God help me to this singer's bed. So, like, I, I the context of the horniness versus it that my perceived notion of horniness in these lines doesn't square to me very well artistically to the last time that we saw them. And I'm not, I'm not, I'm rejecting you from my bed, but. Again, it's really hard for me to read this last little bit without it reading very horny to my particular.
3: Which is, which is, go ahead,
9: Brittany.
6: Oh, I was just gonna say, the fact that you have two couples on stage together, I think you can't ignore that there's gonna be comparisons drawn and the fact that the other couple can't speak even together to me symbolizes like, oh, she's just this young little Welsh girl who's like, I don't know how to say goodbye. I love you, goodbye, I love you. And whereas Lady Percy's like, no, 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 I'm here. Remember the last time we talked we're having to be just doing this hanky panky like oh, oh, oh like i'm not singing the song like that girl you know
3: i also think that's a really good point like uh, that both that there's like another couple there and that this sex talk might be a performance that Hosper's doing for the other people that he's like mm. let's let's um like <laughs> very much like this we're we're the grown-ups we're married we've had sex. We have fiery sex. You, you may guess from, you know, all of me. Um, and, and so don't anybody get the wrong idea. When I see my wife, I want to have sex with her right away. And maybe that explains a bit of why he's like performing it so much, but I guess I'm also, I guess Ariana, this is just like, it never occurred to me before, but like literally why do the women come at this moment to say goodbye to them? Like, it feels a little bit like they're like, okay, we've figured everything out. Like, are they like moments from leaving or is that Like, is there some ceremony about like, we have to see our wives together before we go? It just feels a little weird.
0: Yeah, I I totally agree. I'm gonna have um, Andrew go ahead and then I I will uh, see if I can come up with an answer to that because it's a great question.
5: Yeah, I, um, two things, I guess. Uh, This is just kind of by the by, but the last time I saw this uh, play they had a a kind of interesting finessing of this moment or this scene in relation to the previous uh, scene with Hotspur and uh, uh, Lady Percy. And the previous scene had fallen out as a real kind of argument between them. And it it, um, didn't have resolution that, uh, that either of them or the audience would have been satisfied with. And then this scene, they were, Hotspur and Lady, Percy were spectators almost to this really touching scene of two people who, even though they couldn't communicate through language, uh, they were portrayed as being very completely and truthfully and powerfully in love. And so then the the, the this dialogue and this moment of attempted connection between Hotspur and Lady Percy became Uh, inspired by oh wow look at how well they're getting along they can't even speak to each other isn't there some way that we could possibly uh, manage to you know come together um, intellectually emotionally in our relationship Um, I was just reminded of that as we were talking through this and then the other uh, oh yeah I was going to say I've often read this scene as um, that this is And maybe I'm wrong in thinking this, but I've assumed that this scene takes place some time after the previous leave taking Mm -hmm. so that um, uh, Hotspur and Lady Percy, you know, take their leave before. Then she comes and joins him here in Wales or wherever they are. And now this is another different leave taking that they have to do.
1: And we know I could be
5: wrong about that.
1: at the end of, I don't know about the, the length of time between the two, although it feels like it has been a length of time, Andrew, I agree. But we know at the end of that last scene that Hotspur definitely said, you know, tomorrow you, you're you going to follow me wherever I'm going. And then, so I think he does go to Glendower's and then they're there for whatever length of time. And Glendower earlier in this scene says, okay, now, well, we, Mortimer and um, Hotspur are going to go off to the battlefield at Shrewsbury and then Glendower is going to come with their wives yeah. a couple of weeks later. So I I don't know if it's a situation where they would sort of come in the camp and like you brought your wives with you and they stayed like a little bit off from the battlefield right, or yeah. something like that. Yeah. I, I, can't,
0: I can't help but think of like sort of a Lord of the Rings reference of like the women of Rohan going with the warriors to the camp, you know? <laughs> to, and they're like, oh, yes, we always say goodbye to them, you know. Um, but I, I do think that there is an there's an interesting I think this summit was a political moment in the rebellion. This sort of solidified the rebellion before it was just kind of letters. And so now that these powers have met, it seems to me like this is a big kind of diplomatic meeting and you would want to show that the whole family's involved somehow. And also that uh, Lady Percy is um, the brother of Mortimer, which is an important detail that Shakespeare gets a little bit confused because yeah. um, he actually conflated two different Mortimers into one character. And one would have been uh, the nephew of Lady Percy and the other one would be the brother. And so it's it, in the first half of the play, she's referred to as the sister of Mortimer and then all of a sudden uh Mortimer goes yeah she and my aunt Percy and it's like wait a second so I I remember we sort of pushed that as like he was like making fun of Kate just being Mm. like oh she's the older sister she's like my aunt but yeah uh Koi please go ahead
2: (laughs) yeah I guess first of all I'm just uh the ending scene with Henry V where he's talking to the French uh, princess, there's a lot of kind of uh, parallels to me in in the translation and relationship there. I think it's having read as Glendower, it's really weird to try to arrange a a time to have sex with your fiance through your (laughs) (laughs) father-in-law.
9: It's really weird.
2: I think there's a lot of, I would think a lot of comedy potentially there. And it's like kind of, being really sweet and they have to be poetic because if they aren't then <laughs> daddy won't translate and and what did he you know maybe you could play with what he chooses to translate or not um but i think also a a big thing that i just realized is um the first thing glendower says when he comes in is he's he's saying like oh yeah she really doesn't want you to leave so she's just going to fight with you which if if, per- if Lady Percy hears, that's kind of a core to that whole first scene with her in Hotspur, mm. right? She never had the option to fight with him, and Glendower's like, "Oh yeah, she's just going to fight with you because she just want to leave you alone." And I think that's an interesting difference between the two couples..
9: Mm.
4: Is that- mm, not also, like a, 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 a maybe, and talking about othering too, like a coded reference to sort of the barbarism of of the people on the edges of the empire at all. Like, could yeah, that be there, part of that? We
0: right. we had that first Westmoreland speech where he says, you know, what the Welsh women did to the dead bodies on the field. I can't actually say because it was so horrific, and that 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 language and that um, assumption. Of sort of barbarism definitely uh goes throughout throughout the text
2: um i just think of lady percy being like why are you sweating about all these wars i'm just coming with you it would have been (laughs) a very different scene (laughs) that was never on the table for her
0: yeah absolutely and i think there is there is something kind of um kind of fun and kind of funny because the daughter doesn't speak english that he can like that glendower can like vent all of his frustration on this super moody daughter and just like his all of his lines about her are like a commentary like oh my god you wouldn't even i can't even translate to you this ridiculous shit that she's saying you know like i just love the idea that they're they're like very close but also that they're they're the i remember <laughs> we ended up having a moment where she was like Scowling at Glendower. And then she turned to Mortimer and sort of smiled and sighed. And it was just like, there's these two different relationships, you know, that, that she has to maintain. And one is like very, you know, it's very much with her father, which I'm sure all of us have had contentious moments with our fathers. Um, And the other one is this like new love. And I think, I think that to me is the key is that this is a new relationship. This is, these are newlyweds and that Kate and Hotspur know each other. They're, they're, it's, 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 you know, it's more, um, it's more, and I, I, I don't say this um, to mean uh, something that's it's a more everyday love, you know? It's not like every single kiss is like fireworks or whatever. No, there's, it's an, ele- like,
8: there's an element of comfort and, yeah, and, absolutely. and understanding and authenticity in it. Absolutely. And they yeah. know each other, <laughs> yeah. both
0: in like, they just know and each other habitually, but also in the biblical sense, as we have been talking about a lot. Yeah, I think this is such a, a wonderful little, little gem of a scene. Um, I would like to move on to the, the king and Prince Hal um, talking about fathers and their kids. Here is um, quite a remarkable um, scene. This is the first time that Prince Hal and his father, the reigning king of the land, have a private, moment. well, see each other in the play and have a private uh, moment together
9: lords give us leave the prince of wales and i must have some private conference but be near at hand for we shall presently have need of you i know not whether god will have it so for some displeasing service i have done that in his secret doom out of my blood he'll breed revengement and a scourge for me but thou dost in my, pa- in my passages of life make me believe that thou art only marked for the hot vengeance and the rod of heaven to punish my mistreadings. Tell me else, could such inordinate and low desires, such poor, such bare, such lewd, such mean attempts, such barren pleasures, rude society, as thou art matched with all and grafted to, accompany the greatness of thy blood and hold their level with thy princely heart?
4: So please, your majesty, I would, I could, Quit all offenses with this clear excuse, as well as I am doubtless I can purge myself of many I am charged with all. Yet such extenuation let me beg, as in reproof of many tales devised, which oft the ear of greatness needs must hear, by smiling pick thanks and base newsmongers, I may for some things true, wherein my youth hath faultily wandered and irregular, find pardon on my true submission.
9: God pardon thee, yet let, yet let me wonder, Harry, at thy affections which do hold a wing quite from the flight of all thy ancestors. Thy place in counsel thou hast rudely lost, which by thy younger brother is supplied, and art almost alien to the hearts of all the court and princes of my blood. The hope and expectation of thy time is ruined, and the soul of every man prophetically do forethink thy fall. Had I so lavish of my presence been, so common hackneyed in the eyes of men, so stale and cheap to vulgar company, opinion that did help me to the crown had still kept loyal to possession, and left me in reputeless banishment, a fellow of no mark nor likelihood. By being seldom seen, I could not stir, but like a comet. I was wondered at, that men would tell their children, this is he. Others would say, where, which is Bolingbroke? And then I stole all courtesy from heaven and dressed myself in such humility that I did pluck allegiance from men's hearts, loud shouts and salutations from their mouths, even in the presence of the crowned king. Thus did I keep my person fresh and new, my presence like a robe pontifical, ne'er seen but wondered at. And so my state seldom but sumptuous showed like a feast and won by rareness such solemnity. The skipping king, he ambled up and down with shallow gestures and rash baven wits, soon kindled and soon burnt, carded his state, mingled his royalty with capering fools had his great name profaned with their scorns, and gave his countenance against his name, to laughing at jibing boys, and stand the push of every beardless vein and comparative. Grew a companion to the common streets, and fofted himself and sorry, and and feft and, fefted in himself, fiefed. and fiefed himself to popularity, that being daily swallowed by men's eyes. They surfeited with honey and began to loathe the taste of sweetness, whereof a little more than a little is by much too much. So when he had occasion to be seen, he was but as a cuckoo that is in June, heard, not regarded, seen, but with such eyes as sick and blunted with community. Afford no extraordinary gaze, such as is bent on sun like majesty when it shines seldom in admiring eyes, but rather drowsed and hung their eyelids down, slept in his face, and rendered such aspect as cloudy men use to their adversaries, being with his presence glutted, gorged, and full. And in that very line, Harry, standest thou, for thou hast lost thy princely privilege with vile participation. Not an eye, but is a weary of thy common sight, save mine, which hath desired to see thee more, which now doth that I would not have it do, make blind itself with foolish tenderness.
4: I shall hereafter, my thrice gracious Lord, be more myself.
9: For all the world, as thou art to this hour's, was Richard then, when I from France set foot at Ravenspur, and even as I was then, is Percy now now, by my sceptre and my soul to boot, he hath more worthy interest to the state than thou, the shadow of succession. For of no right, no color, like to write, he doth fill fields with harness in the realm, turn head against the lion's armed jaws, and being no more in debt to years than thou, leads ancient lords and reverend bishops on to bloody battles and to bruising arms. What never dying honor hath he got against the renowned Douglas? whose high deeds, whose hot incursions and great name in arms holds from all soldiers, chief majority and military title capital through all the kingdoms that acknowledge Christ. Thrice hath this hotspur, Mars in swaddling clothes, this infant warrior in his enterprises, discomfited great Douglas. Tained him once, enlarged him, and made a friend of him to fill the mouth of deep defiance up. And shake the peace and safety of our throne. And what say you to this? Percy, Northumberland, the Archbishop's Grace of York, Douglas, Mortimer capitulate against us and are up. But whereto do I tell these news to thee? Why, Harry, do I tell thee of my foes, which art my nearest and dearest enemy? Thou that are like enough through vassal fear, base inclination, and the start of spleen to fight against me under Percy's pay, to dog his heels and curtsy at his frowns, to show how much thou art degenerate.
4: Do not think so, you shall not find it so. And God forgive them that so much have swayed your majesty's good thoughts away from me. I will redeem all this on Percy's head. And in the closing of some glorious day, be bold to tell you that I am your son. When I will wear a garment all of blood and stain my favors in a bloody mask, which washed away shall scour my shame with it. And that shall be the day wherein it lights that this same child of honor and renown, this gallant hotspur, this all-praised knight, and your unthought of Harry chance to meet. For every honor sitting on his helm, would they were multitudes, and on my head my shames redoubled. For the time will come that I shall make this northern youth exchange his glorious deeds for my indignities. Percy is, but, uh, Percy is but my factor, good my Lord, to engross up glorious deeds on my behalf, and I will call him to so strict account that he shall render every glory up, yea, even the slightest worship of his time, or I will tear the reckoning from his heart. This in the name of God I promise here, the which, if he be pleased, I shall perform, I do beseech your majesty, may solve the long grown wounds of my intemperance, if not the end of life cancels all bonds and I will die a hundred thousand deaths, ere break the smallest parcel of this vow.
9: A hundred thousand rebels die in this. Thou shalt have charge and sovereign trust herein. How now, good blunt? It looks are full of speed. So hath uh, the business that I come to speak of. Lord
6: Mortimer of Scotland hath sent word that Douglas and the English rebels meet, met the 11th of this month at Shrewsbury. A mighty and a fearful head they are, if promises be kept on every hand as ever offered foul play in a state.
9: The Earl of Westmoreland set forth today, with him my son, Lord John of Lancaster, for this advertisement is five days old. On Wednesday next, Harry you shall set forward. On Thursday, we ourselves will march. Our meeting is Bridge North, and Harry, you shall march through Gloucestershire, by which account our business valued. Some 12 days hence, our general forces in Bridge North shall meet. Our hands are full of business, let's away. Advantage feeds him fat while men delay.
0: Wonderful. Thank you. Uh, it's it's quite a scene with quite a lot of speeches (laughs) it's got uh, the longest speech in the play the um, god pardon Me" speech Um, just as a way of sort of i i would love to just have uh, the three of you share your thoughts on on this scene and and what happens in it and then i have a a few things i would love to sort of chat about well
9: i i think it's there's so much of the I don't, there's so much that paternal thing of, of weighing trust in a child and of um, having, you know, a child kind of walking on the wrong tracks and trying to pull them back when it's most important, the most important time to. And um, then there's that, that other thing of Hotspur being the kind of idealized version, yet not blood. And also the version that's rising up against you in a physical way versus just a, a kind of kids rebellious way. I mean, a physically harmful way. Yeah.
4: Um, I think it's really interesting that how speaks. I mean, he says a lot in the three times that he does speak, but he opens up his mouth to talk three times. And, um, I, I I know we haven't talked about this before, but I am very, very, very dyslexic. Um, And sometimes on a cold read, it can be really hard to follow thoughts. But that particular, I think that the first thing that Hal says on this bit is one of the more difficult, like twisty passages I've had to like wrap my brain around. And I will fully be honest, but by the end, by the second, it's two sentences. And by the middle of the second sentence, I was just like, "I hope my mouth is making meaning of this because <laughs> I and my brain have completely lost what's going on because it is such a twisted way of going about and saying it, and it's really backfooted to me in that first yeah. salvo, and it's also it's the squirreliness of old Hal, the Hal that we've seen at the top part of this play, and the second time Hal speaks, which is the shortest one." I shall hereafter, my thrice gracious Lord, be more myself. The next time Hal speaks, that is the clearest, most easy to follow part of, or speech that I've had to read is how cold that I, I, I scan that immediately. Like my brain did not have to catch up to it, or I didn't have to like hope on a prayer and a wing that my mouth was making proper sense of this on my first go through. And I think it's so fascinating that it's super twisty direct declarative statement to be more myself and then kind of the most calm earnest thing he says in the show
8: so far. Yeah.
0: Maybe. I think that's a that's a wonderful observation. I remember like I think I said at the at our first one, I've played Hal at different points of my life three different times <laughs> over 15 years and um or no, I'm sorry, over 10 years. And I always struggled with that first speech, and I remember ending up just trying to say it as quickly as I possibly could <laughs> to try and like, okay, so if you connect this to, because I found that when I tried to puzzle it out, it made even less sense, and that when I kind of just tried to speak it at pace, I would get to the end and then go, okay, well, hopefully, <laughs> but I think there is something, as, as we'll get actually at the top of act four, there's a moment kind of like this for Hotspur, when he's trying to praise Douglas and he kind of just I remember (laughs) my actor playing Hotspur was like I can't remember these lines because they're so twisty and weird and he used that same thing twisty and then we were like well maybe that maybe this is Shakespeare giving us a clue that the character just like actually has no idea what to do in this moment Um, and there is something that's like well you may have heard things but don't believe them all and there's like these little separate thoughts that go to each one of those but I think when that happens in Shakespeare, I've, as I get older, I, I really do feel like it's actually Shakespeare giving us a hint that the character doesn't know what to do in the situation, and they're actually struggling to put the thoughts together. Um, and this is obviously an incredibly high stakes uh, situation, probably the most high stakes situation that uh, Hal has been in in this in this whole play so far. Um, I I kind of. Also to me, this reinforces a kind of strange notion <laughs> that I had about this play that the, the sort of, the characters besides Hal that, that have the most lines. So that would be Falstaff, Hotspur and King Henry. They're all kind of live in a different temporal space. And now this sounds like really wacky and out there, but I feel like, I feel like King Henry very much is obsessed with the past. He just is always sort of rehashing over like what happened, what could have happened. Falstaff is very much in the present and just, just completely living in the present. And Hotspur is always kind of looking to the future, looking to the next thing. And I really feel like the, 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 it's kind of this, this crystallization to me in this scene of like personal, like, Henry takes, King Henry takes uh, his personal history and turns it into this incredible political lesson. And there is this really interesting sort of mingling of both like, this is politics 101. And also this is a part of your story and you need to know this. What is interesting to me is that he puts Hal so much with this obsession. Oh, you're always with the common people and popularity and just as a as an interesting he that's how Bolingbroke is perceived in Richard II. Um, when he's leaving England because Richard banished him, um, there's this whole scene where they talk about how off goes his bonnet to an oyster wench. Like these workmen told him good, and and he was very good with the common people. So it's just an interesting. Is that everyone's perception of a weak ruler is somebody who goes to the people or is it the opposite of that, that their strength is actually gleaned from the people. So anyway, sorry, I've been talking for far too long, but a whole bunch of, whole bunch of stuff for people to play with.
1: Yeah. Mitch. Can, yeah. Can I jump in on that, that point about Henry the fourth sort of lesson here, his thesis does seem to be like, don't, don't make yourself too common because or don't 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 be around the people too much. Don't let people see what you're doing because they're gonna get tired of you and they're not gonna respect you um, mm-hmm. if they know exactly what to expect from you, which is Hal's argument in the first soliloquy. Like right down to the imagery of the sun. Mm-hmm. Like I was really struck hearing that by how much Henry is using the same argument sort of but definitely the same imagery uh that Hal used in that opening soliloquy
0: that's a wonderful point and 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 Richard is so associated King Richard II is so associated with the sun and the fact that Hal is imitating the sun I think also ties the two characters together and Bolingbroke is frequently associated with water as well which is just an interesting yeah coy.
2: just the, f- the first thing you said for me it was a uh fundamental revelation in shakespeare when i first was told that shakespeare would write characters not knowing what they were saying i think when i first came to shakespeare i kind of assumed like oh everyone knows what they're saying it's beautiful all the time everyone's fully on thought and the first time i heard someone say like yeah no they they actually don't know what they're saying in this point that's why it's weird i was like whoa they can do that oh shit (laughs) I just love that, yeah, we have to remind ourselves constantly, like, yeah, he, he was writing a play. He knew what was going on.
7: <laughs> <laughs> well, Even- and also there,
0: there seem to be moments, there's some historical evidence that because he invented so many words in these plays that not everyone in the audience would actually understand everything that was going on. That something like uh, one of my favorite Shakespearean inventions, the word gnarled. Yeah. Which is like why when when people say Great like normally dude, Such a I'm good like, word. yes, surfers using Shakespeare. Woo! Um, but that he very much uses the sound. So sometimes when we don't get the meaning exactly across, we can convey a lot with the, the sounds that are in like when when Hotspur's struggling to find, you know, like words, he frequently will use S sounds like skimble scamble stuff you know and like all of these things that are just it's like it's like get, trying to get something away and I, I i think that can happen a lot in shakespeare where repeated sounds can begin to give meaning or a, a emotional sense at least to the audience
1: on, on so, that first yeah. house speech it it like cuz i i've been sitting here since then trying to parse it and i'm like <laughs> still having a ton of trouble it it does feel like the gist of what he's saying is like, I'm sorry for the things I did, but it's not as much as what you think I did. So I apologize for the things I did, but it's not as bad as you think. And that type of thought is like such a convoluted political, like trying to manage his dad, like like whether that's because he emotionally doesn't know how to handle it or whatever or or not versus the last speech, Sam. I really think you're onto something is like speaking from his soul. And, and the king responds similarly. The king's like, so to so the first speech, the king's like, "No, get out of here. Like <laughs> absolutely not. And the last one he's like totally bow. So what
4: sorry. I was gonna say is what I think is really fascinating about this is is reading through it again slowly. I understand what he's trying to say in the two sentences that that entire <laughs> speech is., uh, the next speech that Hal has, not the little interlude, the first two lines are two sentences. What's so crazy about what Prince Hal is saying here and the confusion and either the fear. I mean, there's so many amazing choices available to an actor in something like this and to a company to play it in different ways. Um, But it's the first one is look exactly what you were saying, uh, Mitchell, that it's, it's look, I've done a lot of bad things. I wish I could pardon myself of all of them. I did do some of them. That's true. And then the second one is, but they've been overblown. It is the mealy mouthed, yeah. friggin yeah. liney liney lininess to get there and it so immediately reminds me of a small child yeah. who is trying to come up with like oh no I couldn't have done it I was dead at the time you see this ghost came and took over my body and blah 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 and it's just like this complete <laughs> and utter nonsense thing yeah. and when like, again, like your dad just laying into you then afterwards, it's, it's the, like, I was very, very, very affected by Lynn talking about, um, Hotspur and everything about Hotspur in there really is just like such a blow. And, And it's, Sandwiching a short speech from Hal, from a lot between two really long speeches, and that really, it's just such a, like, we talk about clarity in Shakespeare all the time, where characters say exactly what they mean. And it really is a profound one, I think, which I shall hereafter, after my thrice gracious Lord be more myself. Um, and, and that is just, like, I find that to be, like, a really profound um stated change like we're always looking for when characters change in a text and we're always looking through subtext for when that actual change occurs and like right there it is fully stated in the dialogue where that happens for how and that's really powerful to me
2: but the king finishes the line right the king is right there he finishes the line like i fucking hope so (laughs) <laughs>
4: like, he yeah, for, for all
2: the world yeah. for all the
1: world <laughs> which drives Hal to like another level of it which isn't just like you know okay I'm gonna stop doing this it's I'm gonna freaking kill them and I'm gonna like avenge all of it right like that's how yeah. yeah the fact that the king's right there pushes him to this other level then
0: I also just wanted to to bring Lynn in a bit I, I loved what you did with the the end of that first very long speech it to me is like It's such a wonderful, like he's been lecturing, he's giving his talk, he's sharing the political lesson. And then we get this surprisingly touching moment of where he turns something that is really an insult into this sort of window into him actually missing his son and having some tenderness towards him. And it it, just the way you read it just really was was very, very touching. I, I really enjoyed it.
9: Well, I think I, I want to go back to what you had said, Ari, about, um, about ha- how being the temporal thing, about being in, and I, mm-hmm. I, I see he is in two worlds, or maybe more than two worlds, indeed, um, that as a young man, you know, a bit at, at sea, and d- can't quite grasp the shore that he wants to really land on. You know? Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. Um, that he's trying, he's trying on things and trying out things, and like, where is his real place in the world? And um, and I think that the 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 point where Henry talks about this time right now is just as when I came back um, to England, you know, and Richard was just goofing off as you goof off, and. What, what is that for a country? You know, where does that leave us?
0: Absolutely, and there is an interesting. There's an interesting thing of 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 um, he wasted time, right? Our our favorite line from Richard the mm-hmm. Second, Richard the Second, wa- wasted time, which then wasted him. But I think Bolingbroke doesn't waste time. He's not a time waster,
9: right? Right. But then he. What does he? He says about um about how in time how's time yeah
1: um, uh, while well, you find it that's really interesting because Hal's whole thing according to his first soliloquy is that I'm gonna bide my time yeah right like I'm gonna wait and when the time is right that's gonna help me like be effective which I, I think you're right like is very antithetical to how Henry when... Bolingbroke goes about his business
9: yeah well it's. He oh, says, Jesus, the hope and expectation of thy time is ruined. Yeah. And the soul of every man prophetically do forthink thy fall.
3: Yeah. It's like I, your your
0: time is, is already gone. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
4: Just saying that Ari, because you, you brought up the, I wasted time and now doth time waste me. But I think it's actually really pregnant, the line that follows direct afterwards. But now my time runs posting on and Bowling Brooks mad, uh, wait, wait proud joy. And proud joy, um, which is directly referencing the current king that's on right now. while I stand here, uh, his jack of the clock, um, you know? So I think that this this whole temporal thing actually is a really interesting theme and how it sort of actually does revolve around the king, you know, or the current king, King Henry. Um, And so that's a pretty fascinating, cool point that I had not picked up on before.
2: Yeah, coy. I wanted to share one of my favorite lines that I always forget about, but when I heard it spoken, um, I think it's by Lynn. It was, it was yeah, the king. It's um, to loathe the taste of sweetness, whereof a little more than a little <laughs> is by much too much. I love that line.
0: Yeah, it's a good, there's a lot of like really good
2: zingers yeah. Yeah. in this one. Yeah. Um,
0: I also just wanted to, um, br- I, I think there's a lot of, comedy potential with Blunt's entrance um because I I think that's the most Shakespearean thing right like something huge happens emotionally and it's like immediately undercut um and I love this like Blunt comes in he's like okay the rebels met it's like Ugh, it's crazy and then the king's like yeah dude five days old <laughs> like I already know <laughs> it's just <like laughs> such a funny moment of like confusion I, I the the that was a huge um thing for me in terms of of a way to tie the the whole beginning of the play together was just that nobody knows what's going on you know they don't have 24-hour news and so it's it's not like everyone gets the same news news is very privileged and so when people ask for the news they're they're asking to be brought in on information that they don't necessarily have access to. And so there's, there's very high stakes in Shakespeare with people sharing news. Um, but I, I do just love that moment so much. <laughs> also just wanted to comment very briefly on how violent the imagery that Hal accesses in that final uh, speech of his is. It's, it's a little bit terrifying
4: he's been robbing people and probably killing people all throughout London, like not on a battlefield the way the, you know, Hotspur has, but there's, there's very little doubt in my mind, at least that, you know, as, 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 oh, they're just a bunch of like robbers robbing people around. No, they're a bunch of killers. Like this is 14 something or what have you. Like there's no reasonable way that they're not like murdering people upon occasion when they're relieving them of their purse. So (laughs) You know, it's, it is it is really violent, but part of me just sort of assumes that any noble person from this time period is full of violence. And that just is like a thing that you have to sort of touch into whenever
3: mm-hmm.
4: you're playing one of these men. But like,
3: I mean, that I might not know. be
4: appropriate across the board.
3: I don't know. I think there's something about like, you need to be this kind of man in order to survive in that in that yeah. class of people. And I think there's, I've never, I feel like there's, incredibly high stakes from the start to the end of this monologue because it starts with his father calling him degenerate and by the end he has to have convinced the king to say a hundred thousand rebels die in this which is like cool you did it uh (laughs) so it's like how how do we watch this man turn into a soldier and I I think I yeah I agree with you that like I think inherently he has already been doing very violent things but I also agree that it's it's quite a a stark shift to like um, soldier violence as opposed to robber ne'er do well violence that he's like, and I will nobly murder people, which we're cool with as opposed Mm -hmm. to murder people to steal their stuff, which we say is bad. Like, I think there's, there's some property, most important thing, right? There's something really interesting that we're like watching him become the man, his son wants him to be. Um, It's kind of exciting, but it's also kind of scary. I don't know. I totally agree.
7: Yeah. Kelly. Absolutely, I think, sort of along the lines of what Genevieve was saying, you know, we look at Richard II, or especially Henry VI, and there are all of these things about them being, quote unquote, bad kings, because they're not warrior leaders, and the thing is, is you have to command the respect of all of these people on the battlefield because you as king are required to go and fight these people, unlike now where we, you know, keep our presidents and prime ministers and things out of the line of um of arms. But that is how you won. You know, like that's how you become king in these times when they're still, you know, trying to figure out the bloodlines and or if they matter. Um, but I do think it's a matter of a commanding respect. You know, it is the commander in chief of the military is the king. And that's such a vitally important thing that we don't really have. I mean, there are some countries that are still somewhat like that. But for now, you know, most of the time, our political heads are not the people that are out on the front lines. Yeah, that's a
8: that's a very good point.
4: Yeah. Yeah, there's also an echo of spiritual violence, I think, in all of this. Like part of the goriness of that imagery ties up nicely to me at the end with the long-grown wounds of my intemperance, you know. Where, where as much as it might be like this urge to violence on the battlefield forward, there's a recognition of the violence that Hal has done to the name of the crown here, and that and 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 all of that building up of violence does resolve into those long run wounds of my intemperance. And if I can't pay that by killing somebody else, then my death is the only thing that can pay back those, um, the debt that I've incurred to you, a a violence on the crown and, and thus a violence against the country.
3: Yeah. And as you were saying, Ariana, about like sounds giving some being a way that we can access, like what's the emotional state of the character or what's going on? I love that line, the long grown wounds of my intemperance. It's so like, it feels Mm. so smooth and it's so different than like so strict account and all that Mm -hmm. stuff earlier that it feels like he's like, yeah. And also like, I'll defend the kingdom. I'll defend you as the king. And and also like, I'm sorry, dad. Like I'm, I'm recognizing that you and I need to sort of I need to own my shit with you as your son, which is such a like heartbreaking, oh, fathers and sons, is so heartbreaking.
0: <laughs> Absolutely, it's not just a Russian novel. Um, there is a wonderful um, change uh, in the folio that I meant to put in the script, and I'm really sorry that I forgot to put this in, but that the witch, if he be pleased, I shall perform. In the folio, that line is, the witch, if I perform and do survive, which I think is-
9: Ooh pretty
0: extraordinary yeah, yeah. Um, that's better to <laughs> me is, is like much is much better and i'm really sorry i didn't <laughs> didn't make that change in the script because i know sam you would want to know that there's a better line in the folio
4: yeah but, uh, well you know how i feel about the folios
0: <laughs> oh, oh i do <laughs> um there's a great transition here to be had that the final line of the king is advantage feeds him fat while men delay And we immediately go to Falstaff, who is, if anything, (laughs) delaying. Um, Although he talks about how he is losing weight and dwindling away and do nothingness. But I always, I really (laughs) wish there didn't have to be a scene change there. And that you could just really like have Falstaff entering as that scene was ending and just be like, context. Anyway, let's get into this wonderful bit about loose gowns and red faces
8: and money. (laughs) Oh, Bardolph, am I not fallen away vilely since this last action? Do I not bait? Do I not dwindle? Why, my skin hangs about me like an old lady's loose gown. I am withered like an old apple, John. Well, I'll repent, and that suddenly, while I am in some liking. I shall be out of heart shortly, and then I shall have no strength to repent. And I have not forgotten what the inside of a church is made of. I am a peppercorn, a brewer's horse. The inside of a church. Company, villainous company, hath been the spell of me.
5: Sir John, you are so fretful. You cannot live long.
8: Why? There is it. Come sing me a body song, make me merry. I was as virtuously given as a gentleman need to be, virtuous enough, swore little, diced not above seven times a week, went to a body house, not above once in a quarter of an hour, paid money that I borrowed three or four times, lived well and in good compass and now Oh, I live out of all order, out of all compass.
5: Why, you are so fat, Sir John, that you must needs be out of all compass, out of all reasonable compass, Sir
7: John.
8: Do thou amend thy face, and I'll amend my life. Thou art our admiral. Thou bearest the lantern in the poop, but tis it knows of thee. Thou art the knight of the burning lamp.
5: Why, Sir John, my face does you no know, harm.
8: No, I'll be sworn. I make as good use of it as many a man doth of the death's head, or a memento mori. I never see thy face, but I think upon hellfire and dives that lived in purple, for there he is in his robes burning, 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 if thou weren't any way given to virtue, I would swear by thy face. My oath should be, By this fire, that's God's angel. But thou art altogether given over, and wert, indeed, but for the light in thy face, the sun of utter darkness. When thou rannest up Gad's hill in the night to catch my horse, if I did not think thou hast been an ignis fatuous, or a ball of wildfire. There's no purchase in money, no. Oh, thou art a perpetual triumph, an everlasting bonfire light. Thou hast saved me a thousand marks in links and torches, walking with thee in the night betwixt tavern and tavern. But the sack that thou hast drunk me would have brought would have bought me lights as good as cheap at the dearest chandlers in Europe. I have maintained that salamander of yours with fire any time this two and thirty years. God reward me for it.
5: But I would my face were in your belly.
8: Ah, God of mercy. So should I be sure to be heartburned. How now, Dame Partlet, the hen? Have you inquired yet who picked my pocket?
6: Why, Sir John, what do you think, Sir John? Do you think I keep thieves in my house? I have searched, I have inquired, so has my husband, man by man, boy by boy, servant by servant.
8: The tithe of a hair was never lost in my house before. lie, hostess, Bardolph was shaved and lost many a hair, and I'll be sworn my pocket was picked. Go so to, you are a woman, go. Who, I?
6: No, I defy thee. God's light, I was never called so in mine own house before.
8: So too, I know you well enough. No, Sir
6: John, you do not know me, Sir John. I know you, Sir John. You owe me money, Sir John. And now you pick a quarrel to beguile me of it. I bought you a dozen of
8: shirts to your back. Dowless, filthy dowless. I have given them away to baker's wives, and they have made bolters of them. Now,
6: as I am a true woman, Holland of eight shillings an L, you owe money here besides, Sir John, for your diet and buy drinkings and money lent you, four and twenty pound.
8: He had his part of it. Let him pay.
6: He? Alas, he is poor. He has nothing.
8: How oh, poor? Look upon his face. What call you rich? Let them coin his nose. Let them coin his cheeks. I'll not pay a tenure. What, will you make a yonker of me? Shall I not take mine ease of mine in, but I shall have my pocket picked? I shall have lost a seal ring of my grandfather's worth 14 marks. Oh, Jesus, I have
6: heard the prince tell him I know not how often the ring was copper.
8: Oh, how? The prince is a jack, a sneak cup. Sub blood as he were here. I would cudgel him like a dog if he would say so. Okay, I'm just gonna pause
0: there. Beautifully read everyone. Um, I just wanted to go through a couple of the more difficult Falstaff um ah. references because there's they're they're quite out there. <laughs> yeah. Um going backwards, so sneak cup was just like a kind of fast way of saying someone who sneaks up on people. Sneak oh. up, which is kind of cute um a denier was a tenth of a penny it was like a a, like a penny of a penny just a very very small amount the holland of eight shilling an l so he says you you bought me shirts that were made out of dallas filthy dallas which which is a very cheap coarse linen that you would probably use to create like flower sacks yeah. Um, which is why he says, yeah, give them to baker's wives. Um, and then the Holland would be very, very fine linen fabric that was um, uh, kind of expensive here. And that the, the, an L is like a measure of fabric going back, going back, going back. Ooh, this wonderful bit about the Ignis fatuous. Um, <laughs> so I actually read a whole National Geographic article about this <laughs> yeah. because- time um and ignis fatus is uh latin for fool's fire and it is a natural phenomenon that occurs in marshlands and bogs which is when um uh it produces these flickering lights as gases from all the decomposing organic matter this another name for an ignis fatus would be like a will-o'-the-wisp mm. or um a sort of like just these these sort of fiery lights and these still happen to this day if you're around bogs and uh, marshland and it just has to do with decomposing matter that sort of combusts um, but so this is what he's talking about with with Bartolf's face um, the dives in uh, i never see thy face but i look upon hellfire and dives that lived in purple this is actually really important because falstaff seems to be obsessed with this particular biblical story dives is the in the in the biblical story is the rich man who feasted while the beggar lazarus starved at his gate oh. and falstaff frequently mentions lazarus um so that just seems to be a biblical story that he's very familiar with or has some sort
3: of um fascination
0: yeah and then for all of you out there that love The, the Night of the Burning Pestle, um, <laughs> I think that The Night of the Burning Lamp has got to be a reference to that, although I haven't read that anywhere, but I I it's gotta be, right? Yeah.
4: It was you very, think, yeah. very popular. The Night of the Burning yeah. Pestle is very popular they on its first production, first production.
0: The, uh, the first meta theatrical play, super rad. Well, oh, yeah. we'll have to do a whole read through of that. I would, I would really love to do that as part of this, as sort of like an auxiliary, um, fun thing. But anyway, let's talk about the the first part of the of this. So Falstaff is at a, I, I think, considerably emptier tavern than the tavern where we saw him last, um, and he's so melancholy at the beginning. He's like, I'm losing weight. My skin is like an old lady's loose gown. <laughs> Um, what are your
8: thoughts, Dee, on this? Um, pretty, uh, you know, it's interesting that he's having this conversation with Bardolph. You know, yeah. um, it it just it just is, and you know, Bardolph seems to be holding his own and kind of mm-hmm. prompting uh, Falstaff. You know, to to extemporary, you know, spontaneous speak, and it, it's just. It's just this typical stuff going on for days.
0: <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And,
8: and it's like, he says, like
0: there, Bardolph teases him one time and he launches into this huge F, speech yeah. about like redness and fire. It's pretty, it's pretty yeah, yeah. um, Andrew is yeah. very much enjoying your interpretation of a rather <laughs> sloshed <Bardolph>. What? A, <laughs> tell us about Bardoff.
5: <laughs> yeah, I think, uh, m- m- basically my interpretation of bardolf is look at a scene and where is he on the on the level of inebriation like (laughs) just a little bit a lot of bit or totally gone (laughs) but um i i have a question about this scene and i forget maybe it's talked about later or i may have even missed it as we went through it but what time of day or night are we uh not that it matters to bardolf i mean he's off off is uh, not all the time but uh, do we know what where the sun is at at I this time I
0: think um, I think it's earlier in the day the only reason that I think that is because at the end of the scene I believe Prince Hal says um, go pedo to horse to horse we have 30 miles to ride yet ere dinner time so that sort of leads me to believe that it's maybe late morning perchance
5: right Um, right well and i guess what that speaks to is that it strikes me as a um they're the last ones left yeah uh above (laughs) above the tables and everybody else is snoring and it's the middle of the night but it but it's not and so i guess that kind of speaks to um this relationship in particular and their characters yeah well and
0: we i mean we find out they they've known each other for 32 years 32 That's years extraordinary. yeah extraordinary yeah they've been like drinking buddies for that long i mean i yeah, hope to have a surprising a buddy
5: still alive
0: in like 30 years that i've still no. had now <laughs> it's so cool um yeah There's all these very strange things you say, Falstaff, about torches and links and talking about people who make candles. It's like, it just seems to me like you just go, you just don't need that much to expound upon an idea.
8: I know. (laughs)
0: Conclusion.
8: One word and he's off. Yeah. God only knows where. (laughs) Sam, please.
4: Um, something struck me when I was doing, or when I was listening to the first part of this, and especially Falstaff complaining about the weight that he's losing. Um, and we didn't talk about this before, but I I was just thinking about how our relationship to fatness is completely different and Mm -hmm. how that reading of it is completely different than it would be now. And how all those jokes hit a little bit differently and are a little bit meaner. And I, I, I was struck by it being a sign of wealth Um, during this scene Um, and how in a way Falstaff's size which everybody talks about is also sort of a size on his wealth or his standing Um, and that there might be a little bit of a loss or a worry of a loss of that because sure he might not actually have that much money sure he might not be a great knight but if anybody were to see him in the street they'd be like oh that has to be a wealthy guy and I could be completely off base here but it did pop up
8: no you're not size is definitely a, a sign of wealth because that means you can afford food that means yeah. you can afford drink
0: yeah and the and the drink again as we've said it had so much sugar i mean they were just like consuming sickening amounts of sugar <laughs> a little more than <laughs> a little is by much too much yeah mitch
1: <laughs> well and the thing that has happened right is that Falstaff has been robbed, right? Yeah. So by we know by how in the previous scene, how took the money out, to, you know, to pay off off the stuff, and, and and had the like the list of things that Falstaff owed. But Falstaff seems to me to be using the fact that he was robbed to yeah. to try to get more, right? He's he's exaggerating That's how much he's lost. Yes. So yeah, it makes sense.
0: I love you're that. And there, Sam, I, and I the, also the just love I just love the hostess so much. She's yeah. like, what a wonderful character. A I love that fun. when he's like, oh, you're a woman, go away. and She's like, yeah, yeah. Oh, I've yes. never been so offended in my life. And you think like, oh, she's never been so offended to be told to go away. No, she's never been so oh, offended to be called yeah. a woman. Like it's yeah. just she's so well, she's like such a great malaprop character.
1: And what she actually says is, "I've never been called such a thing in my <laughs> in my life, right? What's what's the?
0: I've never called so, so in my own house before. Um, There's a bunch so of good. staging
1: jokes, isn't oh,
4: like yeah. like you you have a. Well, I just want to say, first off, having the repeating of Sir Sir John is such a great, easy way of building a character without having to do anything. Like, it's just a brilliant writing tool to instantly lay down a character without doing, like, any work. Just have them repeat the person's name over and over again like that.
6: Yeah, she seems just very easily flustered by his energy, and she doesn't seem necessarily stupid, but she just can't keep pace with him. So a lot of it is just like, filler, Sir John, I just, my money, Sir John, just stop being so, that's not, you know, like she's just trying to keep him. Um, So much money she owes him, Oh,
0: or he owes her, rather it's this was be an extraordinary amount of money and you get a sense maybe
6: it's because of all of the time i've spent in hospitality but you get a sense of like okay well fall staff you're you're creating drama everywhere and you're spilling things everywhere but at least you're spending money and you got everybody in good spirits and then you realize wait where's the money it's like (laughs) i put up with all this for the money the money is the thing like i've been smiling and very very nice but like mama's here to make money what are you doing pay up now yeah i've lost it (laughs) yeah (laughs) <laughs>
8: Mom, need to make money. <laughs> okay. <laughs>
6: get money, get paid. Yeah, Kelly.
7: <laughs> the repetition too, though, I-, I love because it's so reminiscent to me of like a mother speaking to a misbehaving child, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. who would be like... All right, Sam. Sam, what did I tell you? Sam, 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 put down, put down the beer, Sam. <laughs> Sam, just you know, it's, it's the same Her way. Her character, like, instant John. character. No, it's like you know, uh, Sir John. All right, Sir John. No, 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 no. You. It's like thank you. No, thank you, thank you. I'm speaking. I'm speaking. And then I wonder <laughs> too
6: if you know if the weight of if if false from walking around being boisterous saying like, Oh, I had all of my money stolen from me. Oh, I can't even spend another night here. I can't afford anything. Money stolen from me. She's scared that like people around are going to start thinking that she's like, you know, hustling people that are in. It's like, yeah. not only are you not paid your bill, but now you're making my reputation and nothing has ever gone down. No funny business. I don't allow. In fact, you are probably the worst thing that I've ever allowed in here. You know, <laughs> like, just Overwhelmed with trying to, um, yeah, just control the narrative, but Falstaff just is not an entity that can be controlled,
0: you know? Oh, it's so, well, and I, I love sort of just their relationship to the the hostess and Falstaff's relationship. I, maybe this is just my, my sort of fancy or my imagination, but it seems to me like at one point they did have a relationship. Oh, I don't know I why, think so too. Um, but yeah. I feel like there is something about their relationship that's sort of like a little bit, particularly in this scene a little like spurned lover a little like I know you and like oh yeah like he frustrates her but she can still smile
6: yeah yeah absolutely yeah I
4: will come in and ask about her husband like that is the thing that that will happen immediately once we get back to it
0: but we do have a lot of she has a lot of husbands over the course of the three plays in which she appears as well (laughs) (laughs) It's, it's important to note (laughs)
1: <laughs> I, I can also very well imagine a situation where Falstaff flirts with her incessantly, but is like never going to put a ring on it. Yeah. It's like type of situation. Right. And her. Yeah. And her. Yeah. And maybe In the fact, reason she says she's so,
6: um, you know, vehement about being an honest woman and a married woman is there's because there's part of her that's like, well, if I had a couple of drinks, maybe I'd entertain <laughs> it. So, no, absolutely not. You know, like denying <laughs> right, it. Right. Or before strong.
1: she had like, this husband. Right. Yeah. <laughs>
0: Well, and it's so funny you should say that, Mitch, because that's literally exactly what happens at the top of Henry the Fourth, part two, is she has Falstaff arrested for the amount of money. And then <laughs> when she's sort of going through this amazing, like, so we were sitting there in this, and she goes into this amazing detail, and then someone came in and said that they needed to borrow a dish and then you wanted food and and she goes on this whole amazing narrative and then she said and then you said you wanted to marry me and where's the ring essentially is what she's arrested him for we sort of find out by by the end of uh of this scene in part two and then he just of course borrows more money off her and like shoves her (laughs) off stage um but yeah (laughs) anyway I want to get to the wonderful um I call this next section knaves and otters um because <laughs> otters are just like so cool and in fact i've gotten to swim with a couple otters in the last couple months and they're also <laughs> sam gilroy spirit animals so i didn't realize there's states to...
6: that allow you to legally own otters one of which being in mississippi oh wow <laughs> like as a pet kind of, what i mean they're kind of aggressive
0: i gotta say you never want to get near them if you're swimming with them in the water they're very territorial um Anyway, Speaking of so, fat
2: being better, we have beavers in Canada, which are just fat otters.
0: But they got that cool tail with the thing, you know. Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> wonderful. In we go. So he just said, "I would cudgel the prince if he were here," and then the prince enters, which is yep. always a, a fun, um, a very fun moment for the audience. And this whole bit, I do want to read this. This little. Enter, enter the prince with Pito marching and Falstaff meets him playing upon his truncheon like a fife is actually in all of the scripts as one of the few stage directions. So it's like, I think that's a sort of direct internal stage direction that he's like using the cudgel right before he comes in. Like I would beat him with my cudgel. And then he comes in and he pretends that it's like a pipe. He's like, look, I was just demonstrating how I use my wind instrument, you know, anyway
8: they come in marching how now lad is the wind at that door in faith must we all march
5: Yea, two and two newgate fashion
8: my lord i pray you hear me
4: uh, what sayest thou mistress quickly what doth thy husband i love him well he is an honest man
8: good my lord hear me Prithee, thee let her alone and listen to me what
4: sayest thou jack
8: the other night i fell asleep here behind the heiress And had my pocket picked. This house is turned body house. They pick pockets. What didst thou lose, Jack? Wilt thou believe me how? Three or four bonds of forty pounds apiece and a seal ring of my grandfather's.
4: Ah, trifle, some eight-penny matter.
6: So I told him, my lord, and I said I heard your grace say so. And, my lord, he speaks most vilely of you like a foul-mouthed man as he and said he would cudgel you?
8: what
4: he did not
8: there's neither faith truth nor womanhood in me else there's no more faith in thee than in a stewed prune and no more truth in thee than a drawn fox and for womanhood made Marion, may be the deputy's wife of the ward to thee go you thing go say what thing what thing what thing why a thing to thank god on
6: I am no thing
8: to thank God on.
6: I would thou shouldst know it. I am an honest man's wife. And setting thy knighthood aside, thou art a knave to call me so.
8: Setting thy womanhood aside, thou art a beast to say otherwise. Say, what beast thou knave, thou? What beast? Why, an otter. Uh,
4: An otter, Sir John? Why, an otter?
8: Why, she's neither fish nor flesh. A man knows not where to have her. Thou art an unjust man in saying so. Thou or
6: any man knows where to have me, thou knave thou? <laughs> thou
4: sayest true hostess, and he slanders thee most grossly.
6: So doth see you, my lord, and said this other
8: day you owed him a thousand pound.
6: Sirrah, do I
4: owe you a thousand pound? A
8: thousand pound, Hal. A million. Thy love is worth a million. Thou owest me thy love. <laughs> Nay, my lord, he called you Jack and said he would cuddle you. Did I, Bardolf?
5: Indeed, Sir John, you <laughs> said so.
8: Yea, if he said my ring was copper. I
4: say tis copper. Darest thou be as good as thy word now?
8: Why, how? Thou knowest, as thou art but man, I dare. But as thou art prince, I fear thee as I fear the roaring of the lion's whelp. And why not as
4: the lion?
8: The king himself is to be feared as the lion. Dost thou think I'll fear thee as I fear thy father? Nay, and I do, I pray God, my girdle break. Oh,
4: if it should, how would thy guts fall about thy knees? (laughs) But sirrah, there's no room for faith, truth, nor honesty in this bosom of thine. It is all filled up with guts and midriff. Charge an honest woman with picking thy pocket. Why thou whore son impudent, In. Bossed rascal, if there were anything in thy pocket but tavern reckonings, memorandums of body houses, and one poor penny worth of sugar candy to make thee long-winded, if thy pocket were enriched with any other injuries but these, I am a villain. And yet you will stand to
8: it? You will not pocket up wrong? Art thou not ashamed? Dost thou hear how? Huh? Thou knowest in the state of innocency Adam fell, and what should poor Jack Falstaff do in the days of villainy? Thou seest I have more flesh than another man, and therefore more frailty. You confess, then? You picked my pocket? It appears so by the story. Justice, I forgive thee. Go. Make ready breakfast, love thy husband, look to thy servants, cherish thy guests. Thou shalt find me tractable to any honest reason. Thou seest I am pacified still. Nay, prithee be gone. Now, how? To the news at court. But the robbery, lad, how is that answered?
4: Oh, my sweet beef, I must still be good angel to thee. The money is paid back again.
8: Oh, I do not like that paying back. Tis a double labor.
4: I am good friends with my father and may do anything.
8: Rob me the exchequer the first thing thou doest and do it with unwashed hands too.
4: Do, do my lord. I have procured thee, Jack, a charge of foot.
8: I will get it in a bin of horse. Where shall I find one that can steal well? Oh, for a fine thief of the age of 2 and 20 or thereabouts I am heinously unprovided well god be thanked for these rebels they offend none but the the virtuous I laud them I praise them bardolph
4: my, 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 my lord uh, go bear this letter to lord John of Lancaster to my brother John this to my lord of Westmoreland Go, Pedro, to the horse, to the horse, for thou and I have 30 miles to ride, yet ere dinner time. Jack, meet me tomorrow in the temple hall at two o'clock in the afternoon. There shalt thou know thy charge, and there receive money and order for their furniture. The land is burning, Percy stands on high, and either we or they must lower lie.
8: Rare words, brave world. Hostess, my breakfast, come. Oh, I could wish this tavern were my drum. Lovely. Oh, what a
0: fun scene. I'm so glad we get to end with like a little bit of comedy after all the emotional turmoil. <laughs> <laughs> it's, like, it's very nice. Um, thoughts? Thoughts on this this wonderful second half of this scene? I love the otter bit and the man knows not where to have her. Everyone knows where to have me. Like there's just so, <laughs> it's just so many great It's moments. an
8: interesting... It seems like a very interesting shift from, you know, from what we've seen, Falstaff and Bardo and, and the joviality and the banter. It's an interesting and very sudden shift to, um, to Falstaff's um, talking about the court. Just like that, it happens. It's just, yeah. uh, it's a little bit, it's a, not off-putting, but it's startling to me. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, what's going on at the court? Let's talk about yeah. that now. Well, and then I think it also we
0: haven't heard the 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 language of um, hanging in a while, yeah. but do remember that that is the penalty for robbery, and you guys got awfully close to getting caught. Yeah, um, yeah. and so I think that is there. There's definitely very high stakes um, in the in that, and actually that robbery carries on. We feel the reverberations of that all through Henry the Fourth, Part Two, as well. Um, that Falstaff's killing hopsper as his version of the story at the end of the play is like really the only thing that releases him from that. Uh... Mm-hmm.
4: From my perspective of, of reading Howl, it, it feels, it does feel like a different Howl, yeah. uh, coming back to his old territory again. Um, and it's this really interesting feeling of like, he can still hang, he can still jape with the gang. But there is a a more assuredness to it. There's more control to it. There's more love in it, I feel. There's more responsibility in it. Um, And and, and it does feel like um, he's changed uh, somehow. Uh, And the Japing does feel a little bit more... um, yeah what I just said before I think
0: yeah I I think I completely agree there is something um I I think the only thing I can that sort of jumps to mind is like there's kind of he's it's more like he's an observer in this scene like there's something very back-footed about him as opposed to like he was so excited to like find out Falstaff like what's he gonna do like I'm gonna get to know all the drawers and there's something like I've been given responsibility. I'm going to enjoy this while I can. I'm going to poke fun. But there's, there's, there is there's something like there's a like lighter energy to it somehow.
1: Yeah, Mitch. He's used um, as sort of an, a, another separate point here. So he, or question really. He's used his influence to get Falstaff um, an infantry unit, right? Command of an infantry unit. So like clearly that is I think a nice thing he has done for Falstaff right that would I'm not entirely sure what that would but that gets Falstaff some influence or something and I wonder if he's like giving Falstaff the opportunity to like amend his ways you know Ooh. like I, I knowing that we're headed at the end of the next play to a rejection of Falstaff like I wonder if this is an opportunity uh, that Falstaff doesn't take really right but like to stop the drinking and to sort of get back in the good graces of society I don't know.
0: Absolutely. I think, I think as with most things in Shakespeare, it's both like trying to give Falstaff the opportunity and also like trying to poke fun at him because we've already like seen how, how much he abhors um, walking. <laughs> so um, instead of getting him yeah. a cavalry unit, like he got him an infantry unit. And so there's like, there's like an edge to it, I think as well. Yeah.
4: Um, I, I believe and in he fact, got Falstaff.
0: Oh, sorry. Go ahead, Sam.
4: <laughs> oh, no. I think he got Falstaff paid, too. I think that there is a commission that you get for for leading uh, a regiment at the time. So I, I, I do think that there is like a little bit of just like he got his friend.
0: And paid. the <laughs> next time we see Falstaff, he is flush with cash because he has essentially conned the system. And really, to my mind, I was just sort of labeling the remaining seat, sort of French scenes for the rest of the play today. And, um, I call that like the, the most cynical look at the military industrial complex, um, in the play. Um, cause there is something so kind of sickening about the fact that like, they just get these, these poor people, they just throw them out of prison and give them a weapon and absolutely no other equipment and are like, okay, go fight, you know? And for the people who do have money, it's a wonderful opportunity for um, the recruiters, AKA Falstaff, staff in this situation to, for them to buy out their service, essentially just give the recruiter a whole bunch of money to forget that they saw them. And this is how Falstaff ends up being totally broke in this scene to the next scene. He has 300 pounds, which is an extraordinary amount of money. So he's very good at, at scamming the system. And, um, <laughs> Remember when we get to the his scene in act 4 my my Falstaff when I did it he said well he would find some alternative for walking and so we built him a wagon and poor Bardolph had to like carry him in on this wagon and then as soon as Bardolph left he opened this um this cloth and pulled out a whole chicken and during the scene where he has this monologue with the audience he ate the entire like huge amounts of this entire like rotisserie chicken it was pretty insane but it's just like what would what would Falstaff spend his money on obviously like a capon and booze you know (laughs) (laughs) like it was really fun um that was one of the more expensive prop investments that we make we had to buy a new chicken every time but um yeah. Anyway, I I I think this is it's a it's just definitely a shift from the end of the last act. I think is 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 really what I want to say. This is a different world. This is a different. The characters are in a different place. Yes, coy.
2: I got chills with the lion. Why not the Why not as the lion? Mm. Uh, dost thou think I'll fear thee as I fear thy father? It's because then I know thee not. At the end, it's like maybe you should have respected him <laughs> a little bit. <laughs> This is, I mean, this is seeing that Falstaff will not follow Hal into that transition, I think.
0: Yeah, I think you're right. I think that is a really important moment. Thank you for for pointing that out, Coy. Um, That is a very significant moment in their relationship. Even if it's on the outside, it's like a seeming joke. There's also like... It, it also, it, Falstaff's attitude throughout part two is like, oh, I'm going to own this place when he's king. Yeah. Like, I yeah. own Fal- the realm. Like, choose a yeah. position.
2: Falstaff yeah. will not respect Hal as the lion. Yeah, and yeah. that just fundamentally means that he can't be friends when, uh, when Hal's king.
8: Well, as long as he and Hal are friends and connected in some way, his position and his safety is assured. End of story. But, mm-hmm. of course... When Hal rejects him, ultimately, then, you know, he's in trouble. His uh, response
0: to, um, to Hal's speech is like so weirdly simple. And he says, uh, Justice Shallow, I owe you a thousand pounds, is the first thing he says after that speech, which is like amazing. It's like the reality, he just can't deal with it. So he has to deal with this like, I mean, anyway, love it. Any final thoughts about this um, this act? We had we sort of got to visit all three worlds: the world of the king, the world of the rebellion, and the world of the tavern. I think it's 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 a wonderful little transitional act.
2: I love Act Threes in Shakespeare; they're always the best. Whenever <laughs> whenever I'm looking for monologues, I always remember that most monologues, the good ones you want to do for an audition, are in Act Threes. Oh, Almost
8: that's an interesting insight. So many Thank of you. Them. <laughs>
0: Toys monologue insights i love it <laughs> uh,
4: the, the, i'm struck by at the end of this act the world is the world has already changed but it's sort of like just bringing up lord of the rings it's like one of those scenes where like you know that they're about to be like trekking on the road and from like here on out it's just going to be like gnarly adventure and swords and blood but this is like we have to go back to the tavern one last time and see everybody the way that they were, but not just the way that they were, but like the perfected version of the way that they were. And even, um, I was really struck by uh, Falstaff's apology too. like that whole sort of beat and that whole plot point, like that's been running for a little while now just gets nicely tied up. And then we go, you know, the rest of the play is going to be in some, some, Mud, yeah.
0: mud and blood. Uh, yeah. I love that instead of apologizing to the hostess, he says, "I forgive you." It's yeah, like such that. a dick thing to do. Like yeah. instead of being like, "I'm sorry," I accuse you of yeah, like being you. a thief. Like you just, I forgive you. Oh, what a we'll move.
1: <laughs> there's this just structurally. There's this idea that uh, in English history, right. Of like England being complete, like including England and Wales and Scotland and Ireland and France, right. Like that is England that they're trying to put together. And I was just thinking about over the course of this full tetralogy, um, Richard starts to lose some of that, right. He has to go to Ireland to put down a rebellion. And, and it strikes me that three, one, this scene is the low point of that, Unified england when when these three guys literally split it up yeah. on a map, right? like even England itself they've they've broken it to pieces, and then we see Hal sort of like rise from the ashes right and become Henry the V and then he proceeds over the course of the next couple of plays to like put it back together, including like getting France, which is something yeah. they you know.
0: That's a wonderful point, Mitchell. I'm, I'm working on the script of Henry V for our Henry V radio play right now. And it is, it's fascinating the way that um, there are four captains, each representing a different uh, part of, there's an English captain, a Scottish captain, a Welsh captain, and an Irish captain that all interact mm-hmm. in very interesting ways. But like, we wouldn't see that in this play that all of those people were united on the same side. So it's, it is, yeah, it's really, that's, that's a wonderful point um, that we, we go through the breaking up and coming together of, of this realm.